I'll ask the rest of you to open your Bibles with me to the book of First Peter chapter 3 as we continue our verse-by-verse exposition of Peter's work of encouragement to the believers uh, scattered in the empire that uh, were facing persecution and difficulty, and uh, Peter writes to encourage them, and uh, I think we all could use some encouragement, amen? You know, we prayed earlier for those on the East Coast that are experiencing the hurricane, but even apart from that, there's so much that each of us deals with on a weekly basis, so much potential for difficulty, for heartache, for, for strife, and, and uh, sometimes we just need to be encouraged. And uh, praise the Lord that his word is full of encouragement for his people. And, uh, you know, as we come together this morning and we open up God's word, we do so because we know that the greatest source of hope in the world is found right here in the pages of Scripture. There is a confidence that comes through knowing Christ. There is a hope that is found in God's word that comes, comes from faith. It comes from the reality of faith. It comes from understanding and knowing who Christ is and what he's accomplished on, on our behalf in our place. And it's not based on our performance. I think that's the greatest encouragement of all, that the hope that God offers us, is it isn't based on our performance. Certainly, in order to, if we want to enjoy the fullness of the Christian life the way that God has intended for us to enjoy life, if we want the fullness of the blessing of the Christian life, we need to be obedient. But our obedience never stands in the way of God's faithfulness. God is always faithful to his word, and his promises are sure even when we're not. We may not be sure. We may be uncertain. We may be having difficulty, but God's word is sure. And so Peter has been writing to the church to encourage them to godly living, to help them understand. He, he knows they're suffering, and yet he exhorts them to be obedient, understanding that even in the midst of difficulty, that we have a responsibility to represent Christ. That even in the midst of our hardships, even in the midst of our suffering, that we have a responsibility to represent Christ. And how we respond to the difficulties of life speaks volumes of what we believe about Christ. And it speaks it not only to us and to our heart, but it speaks it to those around us, to those that know us and those that we interact with. And, and so Peter writes in order, like I said, to give encouragement. He reminds the people of the promises they have in Christ. And most recently in, in chapter 3, he's been reminding us that if we pursue what's good, that we don't suffer for doing what's good. But when suffering comes, there's still hope in Christ. And we're to focus our attention, focus our eyes on Christ to sanctify him in our heart, to respond to the world around us for those that ask of the hope that is within us in a way that shows compassion for people and reverence towards God in order that our consciences may be clear as we submit ourselves to God's sovereign 
And that's kind of where we finished in uh, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 17. We're going to pick up this morning in verse 18 as, we, as I talk to you this morning about the substance of our faith. Peter has told us to sanctify Christ in our hearts, and now he tells us specifically what to look at. He reminds us of the strength of who Christ is and what he has accomplished. Would you stand with me this morning in reverence to the reading of God's word? 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word this morning, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to its truths, that we would be conformed to these truths that we hear to be more like Christ than when we first came in. Magnify your word to us, strengthen us in our faith as we come to know Christ better. In your name we pray. Be seated. Andrew, I want to turn me down a little bit. So, sound systems are just giving us a bit of a trouble this morning. That's better. I think. What's that? My. <laughs> so, um, well, first of all, the, the power outage was just a battery that didn't signal it was getting low. It just went dead. So that was my fault. And uh, And now we're just adjustments being made. But, uh, you know, as, as we look at this passage this morning, there's a lot of questions that kind of arise out of this passage. This is, in fact, one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament. When you, when you begin to look at it, um, it, is, it is an extremely difficult passage that has caused much debate in, uh, in Christian history. Um, theologians have debated about the meaning of this text for, for centuries, and I imagine they will continue to debate on through the centuries. And, uh, and, and I will tell you, I will tell you, as we work through this over the next few weeks, I will, uh, I'll kind of bring you along on, on, on where I am in understanding this. But I think the primary thing for us to understand, first of all, is it's all about Christ. So, and, uh, and as we seek to understand any text, we always have to try and understand it in its context. That is, we look at what, is, what was Peter trying to communicate here. And, and as we, as if we come up with an interpretation of a particular section of Scripture and it doesn't really fit what's being communicated by the author, it's probably not really what was intended. 
So it's not what it means. So there's some things that can be rejected offhand there. But I want to focus our attention this morning on Christ's finished work of the cross. Because while there are a lot of uncertainties in this text, there are some things that are very certain. And, uh, and the things that are very certain have to do with what Christ has done in order that we might recognize that he and he alone comprises the substance of what faith is. He is the substance of our faith. When we talk about what we believe in, what we're trusting in, what our encouragement is, we are talking about Christ. We are talking about his finished work on the cross in order to procure our salvation. In fact, all of this text is really, when the way that I understand it, it's really all about what Christ has done. That Christ procured our salvation, Christ has proclaimed our salvation, and Christ protects our salvation. Those are, those are the three major divisions of this text. We're only going to deal with the first one this morning, that Christ procured our salvation. Because if we, talk, if we think about that, apart from Christ, there, there is no salvation. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. He, he is the means by which we are saved. And so we have to think, well, what is salvation? What does it mean to be saved? Because people have a lot of different ideas about what it means to be saved. And as we move through this text, we're going to look more specifically at, at a definition of salvation and, and our understanding of what it means to be saved, because that's extremely important to the way we approach the Christian life, to the way that we approach our obedience to God's Word. If we're not understanding what it is that Christ did and what He accomplished on our behalf, then we're not going to respond properly to that. But if we understand what Christ has done, how he accomplished it, then we are better in a position to respond to those realities. And it is the reality of who Christ is and what Christ has accomplished that gives us hope in a world where so many things are uncertain, where so many difficulties come our way where so much lends itself to despair and discouragement, yet as we focus our heart and our attention on Christ, our hearts can be encouraged. We can be strengthened in understanding that He has done all of this, all that we're going to look at today, all and really all of what the whole of Scripture speaks about when it comes to the person of Christ, that he's done it all on our behalf and for our benefit. You see, we stand in in a position separated from God because of sin. When Adam first rejected God's rule and provision in the garden, when he ate of the fruit that God told him not to eat of, he caused a division between God and humanity. And the curse of sin fell on creation. And it, and it left not just Adam, but all of Adam's descendants, it left them in a, in, a, in a position of separation. We have been separated from God. Not only because of our personal sin, but because of the curse that came down through Adam. When Adam 
sinned against God, the earth began to produce thorns and thistles. Sickness and cancer entered into the world. Work became difficult. Childbearing became painful. All things, all the things that are wearisome and hard about this life ultimately came about because of sin. And yet God did not abandon us to the consequences of sin. But he offered hope through his son Jesus Christ. Hope for deliverance. Hope for a better future. A hope that was fulfilled through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And that is the encouragement that Peter is moving us towards as he's been exhorting us to faithfulness. He's been telling us to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. And he says, and these are the things that he has done in order that you might be encouraged, in order that you might be strengthened, recognizing that the substance of your faith is Christ. As one commentator noted, the emphasis on Christ's victory reminds believers that the troubles of the present time are temporary, that victory is sure because Christ has triumphed over evil powers. So as we look at Christ's victory, we are shown four truths concerning the procurement of our salvation. I want you to notice in verse 18, and all of this is going to come from verse 18 this morning, by the way. First of all, I want you to notice the sufficiency of of Christ. Look with me at verse 18 in your Bible. It says, For Christ also died for sins once for all. The Greek is especially interesting in the first part of verse 18, and I'm not going to get into all the different Greek words that are used here, but while the New American Standard says, while Christ died for sins, the actual word translated as died is the same word that's translated back in verse 14 as suffer. And so while there's no doubt that Peter has in view that Christ died for sins, he didn't just merely suffer for sins, he actually died for them, he is drawing a comparison between the suffering of this life that we endure and the suffering that Christ endured on our behalf. So he's drawing that parallel there. It doesn't come across in the English because of the the word change, but that is the parallel that, that Peter is Peter is trying to help us understand that even if we suffer, we are blessed, as he told us back in verse 14. He says, just as Christ was ultimately blessed through his suffering. And it was the blessing that awaited him that encouraged his perseverance. In fact, Hebrews 12, 2 says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. See, Christ endured for the joy that was set before him. He knew what was coming. And I think that's what Peter's trying to show us. He's trying to show us, you know what, there's there's an outcome to this suffering that you're enduring right now. There is a future that is better than what you're having to endure at this very moment. Yes, right now, things are hard. Things are difficult. Things aren't looking up. But I'm telling you, just as Christ endured for the joy that was set before him, God has a purpose in your life for the suffering that you're going through in order that he might be glorified in it, and he wants to bring you to the other side. That is the hope that we are given here as we we begin to see the sufficiency of Christ in this reality that Christ suffered for our sins. He says that is what he he, he died for our sins. We, We already talked about Adam in the garden. From the very beginning, God told humanity that the wages of sin was death. 
says, in the day you disobey me, you will surely die. We look, we look forward. The Apostle Paul tells us in the book of Romans, he says, the wages of sin is death. It hasn't changed. It's been the reality from the beginning that when sin happens, death is the consequence. It is the payment that we owe. And Christ suffered for our sins. That word that's translated as for, it's a word that, that has the meaning of regarding. That is, Christ died, Christ suffered regarding sin. You know, sometimes we suffer because of our own sin. I mean, Peter's made that point over and over again. Sometimes we're suffering because of things that we've done wrong. Sometimes we're suffering just because of sin in general, and we don't really know what's happening. But you know what? Christ suffered for sin in such a way as, as he wasn't suffering because of anything he'd done wrong. He was suffering because we did things wrong. We don't typically suffer in regard to someone else's sin. Now, sometimes people do stuff wrong, and we kind of, the, the wash of that can affect us, and it can be difficult. But we don't purposefully put ourselves in the place of suffering in regard for somebody else's sin. That's what Christ did. Christ steps in, and in regard for sin, he suffered for sin, and it says he died for sin once for all. Now again, that may not mean what you think it means. He died once for all. It's actually just one word in the Greek. And it might be better translated as once and for all. It's, that, it's, not, it's not talking about two different things. He's talking about, and this is why I, I, this first point is called, the, I call it the sufficiency of Christ. Because it is the idea that Christ's suffering, Christ's crucifixion, Christ's death for sin was a one, once for all act. Once and for all action. It was something that he did one time. It was unique among sacrifices. There had been a sacrificial system put in place since the time of Moses, and the sacrificial system was meant to point us to the reality that Christ would come. As Hebrews tells us, that the, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, right? But it required the, the suffering of a man to pay for man's sin. So Christ's death is unique. It is a unique atoning sacrifice unlike any other. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 and 27 explains it this way. It said, It was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, because he died once for all when he offered up himself. Or because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. And then Hebrews 9, 25 and 26 adds, nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So the idea that Christ suffered once for all is this idea that it was a unique sacrifice, that it was not something that was going to have to be repeated like the old sacrificial system had Sacrifices that were made daily and sacrifices that were made yearly. But Christ's sacrifice was unique in that it was a one-time sacrifice that was sufficient to pay for all of sin. 
That is the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. He suffered and died regarding our sin with an all-sufficient sacrifice. Christ's uniqueness to be able to offer the sacrifice comes from his nature as being both God and man. You see, because just as Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, why? Well, because the bulls, the bulls and the goats, they didn't offend God. We did. Mankind offended God. It was man, mankind's sin that needed to be paid for. So only a man could pay for man's sin. But here's the problem. Even if you were to be able to cultivate a perfect man as Jesus Christ was a perfect man, if he was only a man, he could only offer himself for the sins of one other man. It required both his nature as man and as God to satisfy an eternity's worth of wrath against an innumerable amount of sin. That was the uniqueness of Christ. He was the eternal Son of God. He was God in human flesh. He was both 100% God and 100% man, and he uniquely was able to provide a sufficient sacrifice for humanity's sin. This is what we mean by the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. Christ also died for sins once for all. But it wasn't just the sufficiency of Christ, it is the substitution of Christ. Verse 18 goes on, it says, the just for the unjust. Here is further demonstrated what has become known as the doctrine of imputation. Christ, as our substitute, took our sin upon himself. Our sin was imputed to Christ's account. When Christ went to the cross, his ledger was empty. And all of our sin was put on his ledger. For all the believing of all the ages, for all who would ever believe, their names were written down, their sins were put on his account, and they were paid for at the cross. His sin, his, he was just as our substitute. He took our sin upon himself. And not, not simply so that we might be forgiven, not simply so that our debt would be taken away, because it was, but it's not only that he took away our debt, but he gave us his credit. He gave us the account of his merits. See, imputation goes both ways. Our sin is imputed to Christ, and his righteousness is imputed to us. So that, so that when God looks at us, it's not just that our sins have been wiped away, but he looks at us and he sees the righteousness of his son in us. That's what it means for Christ to be our substitute. Everything that was on his account comes to us, and everything on our account goes to him. Christ, the just, suffered and died for unjust sinners deserving of an eternity's worth of suffering. In the likeness 
of the death which he died. You think about the horrors of the crucifixion. And you think about how terrible it was for Christ to suffer the time that he suffered. But sin requires an eternity's worth of suffering for our sin. Sin brings corruption. This is what sin is. It's what sin does. When you look around the world, you see the influence and the impact of sin. I mean, you can't not see it. Turn on the news. Look at what's happening. Not just amongst people, but also in nature. Everything is pointing us back to the reality that sin has corrupted creation. We see lust and hatred and selfishness and callousness. It's not that people aren't capable of moral and compassionate acts of kindness. It's not that we're unable to do anything good according to man's standards. But ultimately, apart from Christ, our greatest desire, no matter how much good we try and do, our greatest desire is to glorify ourselves. And therefore, it's not pleasing to God. Because until we get to the point where we're seeking to glorify Him, we've missed it. We've missed His purpose. We've missed His plan. So we've all failed to keep God's laws. We all have idols that we've adored and people that we've lusted after and things that we've coveted and people we've hated and we've become guilty of violating God's commands. We have failed to meet his standard of justice, and yet he sent his son to die as our substitute, to die in our place. His substitution is essential to procuring our eternity, which is just one more reason why Christ is the exclusive means of salvation. Just as Acts 4.12 for there's, says there's no salvation, for there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Sin keeps us out, but Christ substitutes his substitutionary sacrifice makes it possible not only for us to be given, forgiven, but for us to be accepted by the Father because of the righteousness of Christ. And why has he done this? Why has he done this? So let's look at verse 18 again. It says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. This is the purpose of Christ, that we might be brought to God. Not just forgiven, not just given righteousness, but brought to God. This this raises the question about what salvation is. Salvation is, is not simply to make us better people. It's not just to comfort us in the face of death and difficulty. It does those things, but that's not the goal. The goal is to bring us to God, to bring us into his presence. We're separated from God because of sin, and we cannot dwell in his presence as long as sin is present with us. 
And yet Romans 5, 8 tells us that God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That his love might be manifested to us in order that we might know and understand who he is and how he loves us and that we might be brought to God. A lot of times when we think about what heaven is, we, I hear people speaking about the, the, the hope of heaven and they talk about you know, being free of pain and being free of sickness and being able to see family members and, and friends that have gone on before and certainly all of that is, is true about what heaven is. But if your view of heaven is missing the aspect of what makes heaven heaven, then you've completely missed what salvation is. Because what makes heaven heaven is the presence of God. It is the presence of Christ. And if you're not looking forward to heaven so that you can be in God's presence, then you're not looking forward to the heaven that God has promised. And if your desire and your heart is not to be in the presence of God and to be pleasing in His sight, then you most likely have not experienced the reality of salvation. Because salvation is a work that God does in our heart that changes us, that brings about a desire for Him that we don't have apart from the Holy Spirit convicting us and showing us who He is and who we are in His sight, and then changing us so that we might know His love, so that we might know His person, and that we might desire to be with Him. The work of the Spirit motivates us to serve Christ, to be obedient to God's Word, It creates a longing in us to be reunited with our Lord in eternity. And being brought to God is what Christ does, but not just in the sense of heaven. We're brought to God now. When when we come to faith in Christ, we are brought to God. The veil has been torn in two. The, The pathway to the throne room is open. We don't need a priest or a pastor or a preacher to speak to God on our behalf. As believers, we are given a priesthood. We are given free access to the throne of grace that we might seek the face of God and find help in our time of need. This is what Scripture tells us. This is this is the reality of what Christ does in us. When we are when we come to that place where we repent of our sins, and we trust in Christ, we are given access to the throne room of God. Christ brings us to God. He brings us to God in a spiritual sense in order that one day he might bring us to God in a very real and physical sense. We will be in God's presence. But how do we know that all these things that Christ has done, how do we know that it was sufficient? How do we know that his substitution is real? How do we know that his purpose has been accomplished? We know because of the power of Christ. Look here at the very end of verse 18. He says, let's just read the whole thing. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. The power of Christ is manifested to us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Now, I will just, I want to just say as we enter into this final aspect of Christ's procurement of salvation, that this particular passage is usually where the debate begins. Because how we understand these final words in verse 18, made alive in the Spirit, determines a lot of how we interpret the rest of the passage. And this is the point in which theologians go in different directions. Some have argued that, the, the, that what's being talked about here is that Peter is making a reference to Christ's, Christ's death, which is undisputed. Obviously, Christ died, but they'll say that Christ not only died physically, but that he died spiritually. God turned his back on Christ, and Christ took on that spiritual death that all humans experience, and that his spirit was made alive, and that the rest of the passage talks about what happened between the time of Christ's death and Christ's resurrection. That is one possible interpretation of this passage. I don't believe that that answers or fits with the overall theme of what Peter's teaching, but that is one possibility, and we'll look more at that next week when we, when we look at the, the following works. It seems to me, given when we speak of Christ's death and we speak of Christ being made alive, that every other place in Scripture, it always is speaking of his death and resurrection, that the reference here most naturally is read to refer to his resurrection, which was accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit. Some will say the reference here is to Jesus' human spirit. I don't know that you can really make a differentiation between Jesus' human spirit and the Holy Spirit. I mean, Jesus is God, so I, don't, I, have, I can't figure all that out. But I'll say this. The most natural reading of the text seems to refer to his resurrection, which is accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if we look at the resurrection and we look at what Christ has done and we see that he died for our sins, that, excuse me, for the just, for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, he's been put to death, having put death in flesh, but made alive in the spirit, we know because of the resurrection that everything that Christ said he was going to do, that he accomplished, and that all the promises that he's made to us, that are, they are sure because of the power of the resurrection. This demonstration of power assures us of Christ's sufficiency. It tells us that his substitution was actually accomplished and that all that he's promised us is guaranteed. The promise of heaven, the promise of future glory, the promise of our own resurrection. As we face the complexity and uncertainty of daily life, isn't it nice to know that there are some things we can know for certain? I mean, with so much of life being uncertain, it, it, I love to come to God's Word because what's written here is certain. This is true. This is unchanging. This is solid. This, we, can, we can rest in the truths that are given here because they do not change. There are things that are more powerful than our fears, things more powerful than our hardships and our difficulties and our sufferings. Jesus has brought about victory that secures salvation for all those who believe in him. He is the substance of our faith. Understanding that faith is not just accepting some facts about who Jesus is and what he did. 
That's, that's not faith. That's fairy tale faith. We, we can say we believe, but if, if what we say we believe doesn't affect, affect our actions, then we haven't truly believed. We must trust in his sufficiency. We must trust that his sacrifice is the means of our forgiveness. We must trust that he alone is able not only to forgive us, but to bring us to God, to make us acceptable. We must accept and trust that Christ's payment for our sins was sufficient to adopt us into his family. That is faith. Faith recognizes that you owe a debt that you cannot pay and that Jesus Christ has offered to pay that debt on your behalf, imparting to you the righteousness of Christ and bringing you to the Father. It is a reality that is guaranteed by the power of the resurrection. Struggle, difficulty, sickness, death, suffering, discouragement, sadness, despair. These are all part of the human experience. And they're all a result of sin's curse. But God has not left us without hope. He has told us that anyone who comes to him, he will in no way cast aside. If you're broken and hurting and suffering, God is there to give you hope and encouragement and strength. He is there to help you to endure and to overcome. Whether you've known him for years and you've experienced the life-changing power of salvation, you've experienced forgiveness. You've known what it is to, to go from loving yourself to loving God. Or if you've never experienced that, if you will repent of your sins and trust in Christ alone, He will receive you. He will take you. He'll clean you off. He'll make you useful. He'll use you in a way to glorify his name. He is there for us if we come to him. Whether we come for the first time or whether we're coming for the hundredth time, we are assured that we have hope in him. As 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 and 18 says, and I'll close with this, momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison while we look not at the things which are seen but at the things which are not seen for the things which are seen are temporal but the things which are not seen are eternal let's pray together gracious heavenly father thank you for your word we thank you for the work of Christ. He is our sufficiency, our substitute. He has purposed to bring us to you, Father. And he has proven his worth, his sufficiency, through the power of the resurrection. You affirmed his death. You accepted his payment. And you raised him to life to demonstrate that reality. Thank you, Lord. 
thank you for looking down on us and having pity on us who left to ourselves would languish in the consequences of sin for all eternity. But Father, you have given us hope. Not only for the future, not only for eternity, but for this life also. You've told us that you have come that we might have life and have it abundantly. Not to have everything that we want, but to be everything that you would have us to be for the glory of your name. Lord, help us to lean on you for encouragement, for help. Help us to call on you for salvation. Not just the salvation that brings us from life or from death to life, Lord, but the salvation from circumstances, deliverance from discouragement, deliverance from depression, deliverance from despair. You are God, mighty to save, holy and just and true. Oh, Lord, lead us to the throne room of grace and help us in our time of need. Have your way with our hearts this morning, Lord, and give us boldness in our response to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to ask you to stand with me. Jim's going to lead us in our hymn of invitation. The altar is open. I'll be down front if you'd like for me to speak with you, pray with you. Just be obedient to however the Lord may be leading you today. Listen to him. Let's pray. Let's sing.
Please be seated. Just want to 